Welcome to the Humans of Fintech podcast series. We are here today to celebrate the wins, raise awareness of the challenges and walk the talk for change across the entire financial technology industry. Today we are joined by Liam Chenels, founder and CEO of Detected. Detected automates onboarding for enterprise payment businesses. In just a few short years, they've built revolutionary technology, partnered with Visa, raised millions and attracted some of the best talent in the industry. Liam is focused on people and recently did a TED talk on schools and businesses not setting people up to be the best that they can be. He's here today to share his story and some of the learns along the way. So welcome, Liam. Great to have you here. Thanks for having me. Great. So tell us about your role at Detective and actually what that looks like. I suppose... My job is centered around making other people brilliant at their job because yes. if I don't do that, then there's no point really because it doesn't scale at all. Um, and I think probably one of the proudest things that we've had so far is that everybody that's in the business just keeps getting promoted and taking on bigger challenges and moving on to do bigger things. So I suppose my job is to do the boring stuff at like the board and the investment and all that kind of stuff, and then let the people that are the doers in the company try and be as good as they can be. Yeah, I love that. And that's like, how inspiring is that for somebody joining your business, knowing that they can grow and progress within it? What about Detected itself? What, what what does it do? What makes it unique? So the way that I came up with the idea is that during the pandemic, my aunt passed away and she said to me literally three days before it that she couldn't find a mask. And I was like, hang on, there's got to be something, uh, something up there. So I got in contact with people that had the contracts with the government to move PPE and I had contacts with freight forwarders so these are the people that could find space on planes and boats to move products around so I connected the two and said right you've got the products and you've got the transport but the thing we were up against every single time was the fact that we couldn't work out who the businesses were that were selling the stuff or buying the stuff at either end so I rang a guy called Peter Yule, who's a long-time friend of mine. We worked together, but he's a computer science whiz, brilliant technologist. And I just said to him, look, we've, there's this problem. There's all these existing data providers that are done and Bradstreet's in this world, but they're all so difficult to work with, really complicated. Should we work out a way? And that was it. And that was July 2020. Mm. We did that. Wow. A harrowing story, mm. but look at what you've done following what happened. Yeah, I think about it often. I speak to my mum about it often. My aunt would be so happy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, she'd be like, something bad happened and you made something from it. And I think I was getting so frustrated during that time because there were so many people just trying to make a quick bit of money during that period. And that wasn't my motivation, which I think is so important. And it's a part of why things have gone so well. Because it mm. wasn't that. It was actually just trying to genuinely sort out a problem. Sort out a problem and, and help people. Exactly. And that's something that's, you know, throughout your entire career, when we've had chats before, mm-hmm. before recording this pod, it's, it's like a theme that runs through it. It's also the theme of your TED talk. So I'm really interested to hear more about this. So tell us. I got approached about doing a TED talk and I, I remember doing the pre-screening interviews and I was talking about, like, I'm an atheist and, and I don't think the schools are very good and I don't think the businesses are very good and there's better ways we could help each other. And I was doing all these different topics. And they were like, okay, cool. You could do any of them that you want, but what's the one you want to really talk about? And I think the fact that schools and businesses in combination don't support us to be the best that we can be is such a such a huge problem because we're all at work or we're all at school, if you think about it. So I just wanted to share some of my experiences about not doing things a conventional way 
and how they've meant that A, I've got a load of people that trust me, which is really cool, mm. um, but B, I've, I've done all right, things are going well. Can you share some of those experiences? Yeah, of course. I'll do one from school, one from business. Yeah. Okay, so at school, everyone was getting stressed out about their psychology AS level exam because they couldn't remember the dates for the case studies, like Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs or Pavlov's Dogs. And I was just like, just make them up because the people that are marking the test are just teachers looking for extra money. If you make up a case study that's structured well enough, they're not going to go around the internet checking it's a real case study. And I remember I was sat, I was sat in my AS psychology lab, this kid called Isaac Thompson in front of me, and um, I made up a study about two twins separated at birth, one lived in a house in marriage, one didn't, one got believing and it was like Thompson et al, 1938. How could they prove it? And I just went into it so much more relaxed than everyone else. It was really stressed out about those tiny little things that didn't really matter. I ended up getting a B, I think. Oh, um, yeah, and then, and all sorts of stuff. Like, I sold my textbooks because I knew I wasn't going to revise, so I just had money, which made me happy. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Just did all sorts of stuff just to make sure I was happy. And then in work, the main story of not doing things conventionally, there's two. One is that I moved around jobs when I was in my early 20s because I didn't really care about what my CV looked like. Mm. Everyone was like, yeah, but you need this time on your CV. I was like, why? If I meet a company and that company meet me and say, yes, you're awesome, we think you can do this job, the bit of paper doesn't matter. So I wasn't afraid of voting with my feet when a company wasn't giving me what I wanted. Mm-hmm. Because I was like, there's, there's loads of companies and there's less people. I was cold calling Sainsbury's to try and get onto their PSL. There you go, back to recruitment days. Because mm-hmm. I just signed Tesco, so I was like, I'll get Sainsbury's. And this guy at Sainsbury's, he said, ring me back every Wednesday. And I kept ringing him back. And after about six weeks, I said, oh, I said, where do you live? And he said, I live in Godalming. I said, well, that means you get the train out of Waterloo. And he was like, yeah. I said, well, I'll meet you at Waterloo and I'll sit on the train with you to Clapham Junction. And if what I do isn't of interest, we don't ever have to speak to each other again. And he became a client. And I think it's just that sort of stepping outside of the norm and trying to get stuff done. Yeah, I love that. That's, and that's really, I think, inspiring for people listening just to look at things from a slightly different perspective and think, what can I do that's so like that's super impactful? I wonder how many other people have offered to sit on a train with somebody so they can do their pitch. Like, love it. It's like Will Smith in Pursuit of Happiness. Exactly. Um, exactly. So you've touched upon a couple of things there that I want to delve into a little bit more. Like one of them in particular is uh, you mentioned the phrase "voting with your feet." Now we've spoken about this in quite a bit of depth around what's happening in the financial technology industry at the moment and the fact that the average tenure of people within a role within the space is just over a year now. It used to be, when I say used to be, back when I started in recruitment in 2005, the average was four years in one job. And people are moving a lot quicker than they ever have done before. So I know you've got wider thoughts on voting with your feet. So I wanted you to share some of that as well. It's really hard to say there's a set amount of time you should stay in a job because it's so individual based on the type of role you do based on the type of company you're in and based on you as an individual. So if we go into those three things, so a company, think of a company at like seed stage, like raised a million quid, scrapping, fighting, trying to build some revenue. There's five of you there. What happens in six months there can feel like 10 years in another. Go to a series B that's just raised 100 million and there's 250 people in the company and it's starting to creak and processes are getting, the processes are getting to the point where you can't do any work if you give up, you can really easily stay in a company for three years and nobody will notice. So there's the difference in the company, there's the difference in the type of jobs. So if you're in a like 
contributor role that's very different to a support role, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're in people or accounting or legal, that's very different to being like a commercial person that's out selling directly with clients or someone in a technical capacity that's building products. Those people, they have to be challenged and excited to stay. Whereas in other roles, you can just be transactional, just do your job and get paid at the end of the month. Mm -hmm. So there's a change there. And then individual, I just think too many people get comfortable and don't think what's the best thing for me. They don't look at their like quarterly review and say, well, is this good for me? They're just mm -hmm. nervous about keeping their job. Yeah. So there's tons of different factors I could talk all day about it. I love it. But. Yeah, yeah, me too. <laughs> and the bit that I really want to hone in on is, you know, this podcast is about talking how we can get inspiration on how we can drive this industry to be better. Because mm -hmm. one of the things that I'm obsessed with in a positive way yeah. is we are losing so many people from this industry. So every time they move, when I first told you that that those figures on the tenure, you said, do you mean outside of the industry or within the industry? Mm. Well, actually, we're losing them to outside of the industry as well. Not nowhere near at the rates, but we are. There's always that risk. So I'm constantly talking to people about what can we do to really ensure that businesses are authentically tailored their approaches to people investment within the workplace. And I know this is something that you're really focused on. You, you boast some of the best talent in the industry. Yeah. So share some of your wisdom. Don't overhire. That's absolutely number one. Because if you put three people doing the same job, like look at something like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Actually being fulfilled is the thing that makes a difference to people. Doing something and feeling that you're making a difference, that you're creating, that you're developing, that you're innovating. If you have three people trying to do the same thing, the chance of any of those people feeling a sense of satisfaction about their job is so small. So we've kept the team small, but brilliant. If we need support, we go to agencies to do the edge pieces and everybody in the team has a really specific role that they're getting even better at. So we're not saying get involved in other areas. We're just saying, here's the thing that you've got to be brilliant at. Be even more brilliant if you can. Mm. And that, gets people excited people on a friday want to come to work on a monday they get excited but you know so that's one thing don't overhire it costs too much money as well i don't know why these companies do it they've got all these people that just sort of moving emails around and turning up to meetings they don't want to be in so there's that the other thing is pick management really really carefully you can't just say because you've been here a while you're now a manager because you're good at your job you're now a manager there's the whole thing of engineering managers are often the hardest people to find because just because you're a good engineer it doesn't mean you can manage other engineers mm. and I just think it's really lazy by people who lead these companies that are growing really fast to go that's the best person at that thing they're going to be the best manager whereas actually if you just as a manager shut up for a while and just sat in some of those meetings the quietest person might be the person that everybody respects the most mm. then that should be the person that you hire because just because they're not loud or they're not the best engineer or whatever else they might be the best person to lead the team just because they'll listen. So that's, that's Yeah, what I, I love say. that. And I love how you spoke about somebody who may be the quietest in the room because I'm often doing work just to raise awareness that just because that person isn't self-promoting day in, day out doesn't mean that they're not the strongest player that you've got. And look, already it's taken me to my last question. What would you say is next for the future of talent and future of the workplace? Wow. <laughs> the thing that the industry has to do, I think is to just make it a little bit more accessible. If you go on a company's website, it's really hard to work out what people do day to day. I think we should do a lot more to say, 
I am a X and here is what I do that day. That's a really good way of hiring. So like making it more accessible because when you actually look at it, none of this is that complicated. If you go into one of these hyper growth scale ups and you go into their office, it's not MI5. <laughs> it's just them delivering projects and creating new things. It's not, it's not MI5. So make that more accessible. The other thing is drop the obsession with university. We have to drop the obsession with university. I saw um, a big payments company had a, a job advert the other day and said, 12 years experience if you've got an MBA, 16 if you haven't. And I just was like, what on earth are you playing at? I think there's so many amazing kids, and this is the, probably the thing that I'm most passionate about, is that kids between 16 and 19 are just like left. There are so many amazing, bright kids at 18 that are just a little bit lost that should be connected with these businesses and given purposeful, specific roles, not just come in and make us tea because we've got egos, do you know what I mean? We should be getting people out of schools and giving them a chance to learn, even if it's a gap year before they then decide to go to university. I just think we've got to change the approach of you finish school and you go to uni. I think you should finish school, go into a company, learn some stuff about yourself and the world of work, and then make a decision if you want 60 grand off a debt. Yeah, really, really good shout. Because you're so right. That was a great example that you know, you've got a payments company saying you need to have an MBA. Like, come on. Um, and we see it all the time in recruitment, all the time. It's such blinkers views on what's next for talent. So thank you for sharing your views. I've really, really enjoyed talking to you. You've given so many great examples that people listening to this, it will make them think and it will make them think, hey, how about we implement that here, which is exactly what this pod's about. So thank you for joining us on the Humans of Fintech podcast series. Thanks for having me.